welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. So you're back in your kingly duties, what with the Renaissance Festival? Yep, three days coming up this weekend. Oh, you guys go Monday also? Yep. Oh, three-day weekend, and it's the free kids weekend too, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so and that's the one that kills you because we're usually dead on Monday morning, mm-hmm. but this weekend it's like Monday morning we're dead, and it's like, oh, shit, we got to do it again. <laughs> Scott said a swear. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Hey, adventurers, welcome to episode 70 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name is Patrick. And... Uh, ear. I mean, do I? I thought we fixed these issues. Yeah, I was just messing with you, King Scott. Here, everyone. Uh, hopefully, sounding a little bit better than I did last time. Well, we got a big episode today, Scott. A bunch of random banter, but recent plays today. We got Terracotta Army, Oak Mountains Out of Molehills, Exit Shadows Over Middle Earth. We're going to be reviewing Rise of the Gnomes, then mm. looking back on Grand Austria Hotel. Before we have a little talk about some of these, uh, what do you call them, gateway games or welcoming? Uh, See, I still I call them you gateway really games. Them. I know that's like a faux pas now. Well, I think what's wrong are... with calling it a gateway game? I, I, I I'm going to try and speak here. <laughs> Shut uh, up, Scott. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think it's like these ones that we're looking at. They really are gateway games. They're ones that scratch the itch for both new gamers and seasoned gamers. We'll call them maybe um, light rule sets, but a lot of depth types of games. Sure. It just flows off the tongue there. I mean, that's chef's kiss there. <laughs> Scott, I was walking around Walmart and I caught Doomlings on the shelf. One of the very first games that that was provided to the show. We, I think, they were our first interview, like the first. Yes. Hey, this is a designer publisher combo. Kind of neat to see that in in Walmart, and I think they're in Target too. They are in Target. I did see it there, and yeah, it it's. I know we didn't directly have anything to do with it with their success, but. I, I almost look on it like a being a proud uncle or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yes, that's a great thing there to see that. And then another thing that's coming up is the Pittsburgh Retro Gaming Con on October 1st and 2nd. Very, very excited about that. We're going to have a couple panels. We're going to be teaching games. We're going to just be gaming with people, just having a wonderful, wonderful time. Two days, early October. Come on out to Monroeville, Pennsylvania. It's going to be a great time. And this is a convention that was founded. They call it the Retro Gaming Con because it was founded on retro video yes. games like your Mega Man, Legend of Zelda, Contra. The dude that holds the world record for Contra. He's actually like he used to live here in Greensburg. I thought that was kind of – I thought he was making it up. But apparently he like – I was like, so what do you – how do you get the record? And he's like, well, I beat the game twice without taking a hit. What? I was like, what do you mean twice? He's like, when the game ends, it goes back to the title screen and you just go again. And it's on it. That's insane. Okay. Absolutely insane. Okay. What video game could you play? Do you think, even taking a hit, that mm. you could finish the video game? Oh, my goodness. Uh, oh. You know, I really have to give that some thought because I haven't done video games in a long, long time. But I mean, the, there's a handful that that I was nearly obsessed with, but like to just sit through, not die, and and complete. 
Oh, Lord, I have no idea. <laughs> is there one that comes to your mind? One that comes to my mind, and this is so absolutely just out there. There was a video game called Raceland, I think it was. It was kind of like a uh, ripoff of Conan, a barbarian. And okay. they had it up at our uh, like uh, student union at college. And I would go up mm-hmm. there sometimes, and no one be on it. We'd get on there and start playing. And, oh, my God, I would just play that thing forever. And then whenever I finally finished that, that was such an amazing feeling. And then you're looking around, and you realize that you're there all by yourself. And then you realize, <laughs> my life is really sad. <laughs> you immediately reflect on your own mortality. <laughs> you know what? Uh, my buddy Mike, I think I mentioned this on the show before. He got me one of those Super Nintendo minis. So Super Nintendo, Sega, they all have a oh, mini, yeah. which is like you – it works with the new TV. You plug it in and it's got a little control. And there's a bunch of games preloaded on it, which big deal nowadays. You have emulators so you can download basically any game anyway. But he got me that. I plugged it up, plugged it in in that big TV in the basement. And I was like, this is great. You know, when, when my wife's on the road, I'm going to sit down here and I'm going to play some games. And I did it like a year ago. I remember my level up was beating Super Goals and Ghosts, which is a notoriously oh, very gosh, difficult yeah. game. And it's a cruel game, too, because whenever you beat it, it's like, hey, great job, but you have to do it again. <laughs> like it literally, it starts you over from the get-go and it, it cranks up the difficulty. You, you do have to beat it twice in order to officially beat the game. And there's subtle differences the second time through, but um, I, just, I can't bring myself to sit in the dark basement and at like 9.40, 10 <laughs> o'clock in the evening and just start playing a game from 30 years ago. It's it's really uh, – it. I like it's, you start to reflect on the yeah. fact that we have a finite amount of time on the planet. <laughs> and here we are doing a board game podcast. <laughs> Scott, Journey into the Beyond. We talked about this one a couple episodes ago in our uh, Adventures on the Horizon. I mentioned it last episode. It is almost funded. I'm wishing Liam luck. I want to see this thing get right across the finish line. Newly upcoming. I was looking through the hotness and saw Inventions from Eagle Griffin Games. Did you see this one? I, I didn't see that, but you have me hooked on Inventions, Lacerda, and Ian O'Toole. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm all over this one. Yeah, yeah. It says here, Inventions follows humanity's most noteworthy innovations and places the power of these technological developments in your hands to evolve your societies over the ages. In Inventions, cards simulate these new concepts. Cards are the ideas that eventually become the inventions. Once they're invented, these tech, these technologies can be shared with the world and everyone involved in the process spreads the exciting news, giving credit where credit's due. You know what? It's a Lacerda game, so you know it's going to have plenty of complexity, oh, yes. a, lot of, a lot of meat to chew on in there. Throw in the Inno Tool artwork that's been a winning combo. And I'm, you know what? Knowing very little about this game, I'm excited to find out more. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Now, and see the next thing you have it on in here. This probably has a lot more to do with you than I really remember. But mm-hmm. eBay is announcing plans to purchase TCG Player. Now, I remember whenever I had my shop, sometimes we'd go on there to get ideas for prices of cards and stuff like that. But what do you think this is going to do? I mean, is this a a big thing that's going to happen or it's going to change things or what do you think? Oh, it looks like it's happening. You know what? I'd be surprised if they change it drastically, but I honestly have no idea. I just thought it was pretty profound that eBay is looking to purchase TCG Player. Back in the day, I think it was actually called Brainburst.com. I mean, I was in – this was like 2000, 2001 Mm – and uh, Brain Burst is where you went if you wanted your Type One Magic: The Gathering stuff. They they had some standards. Some at the time it was called 
extended, but uh, type one was all about brain bursts and you could read about how great mana drain is that sort of maybe i'm confusing it with the mana drain.com but tcg player eventually it became a place where you know they still have some articles but it became mostly deck lists tournament reports and a site where you could go to buy and sell singles practically the premier site to do it i know uh, the guys that bought the shop who we are still uh, very close yeah. with they use it a lot and i mean a lot things that aren't moving in shop or something that suddenly turns hot and they need to move it like Today, they'll put it on TCG Player and get it moved. Interesting to see. Uh, eBay did make a statement uh, some time ago about wanting to be like the premier place in the world to go for CCGs and trading cards, baseball cards. And uh, looks like this is a step in that oh, direction. Oh, yeah, definitely could be there. Huh. You got one on here about cards. Oh, this one just boggles my mind here. The, all right, prepare yourself here, 15th expansion for dominion it's going to be taking 15. players to the high seas in search of treasure with dominion plunder prepare to deck build your pirate crew with the expansions 500 more cards including mm -hmm. 40 new kingdom cards you'll find treasures wow. duration cards traits that modify piles and events it's not a standalone expansion you will need the base cards and rule book to play, but oh my gosh, I mean, this game is we just played it not too long ago for one of the first times. It was it was good to go back home again and mm -hmm. play that game again. But seeing 15th expansion, it's almost like to the point you almost think, is it getting too bloated? Ah, uh, you know what? It tells me that it's still selling, oh, that, that and is true. I would delightfully tap into this. It, it, it's uh. A modern classic? Oh, my. I mean, this one here really put the whole idea of deck building on the map. Yeah. Yeah, it was the the birthplace of the genre was Dominion. Oh, my, yes. I fondly remember my buddy Ben getting married, and he was over in, in the basement. We were all just hanging out, like, the night before the wedding. They were actually getting married out in Latrobe, out your way, and... Uh, they all stayed in my house the night before. They all liked the wedding, Mike and, and my brother mm -hmm. and me. We just sat from 6 o'clock, like we had dinner. We sat from probably 6 o'clock till 3 in the morning. Dominion, <laughs> Dominion. Dom now, this was this is 15 years ago or so. This is when it was like the new thing, 2009 or 2010, shortly after it came out. We had a handful of expansions, and that is all we We would finish the game, deal them up, let's do it again. Deal them up, let's do it again. When we think of our fond gaming memories, that one's really close to the top for me. Oh, I, I could, I definitely agree with you on that. In that, whenever you play that, it's, I, I always go on this where you feel like whenever you go back and you play one of those games, you just need that quick refresher of the rules and you're ready to go, and you just get that nice warm feeling, and you're just like in that zone and playing it. And Dominion, a lot of times, it's really a lot of times like playing solitaire with four people but some yeah but often. it's still one of those things where you look at what people are buying and you get an idea like oh that was a nice move and then you start the wheels start going in your brain thinking oh, i need to do that need to do that seeing that it's 15th expansion yeah it seems like a whole heck of a lot but like you said it just shows the popularity of it and hey cheers to those guys 
Scott, I want to kick things off today with one that uh, that I'm going to squeeze in here. It could be an adventure on the horizon because it's live on Kickstarter right now. And uh, we actually got a copy in. This one was provided by the publisher for us to play. It's likely going to be one that we have to pass along. It is a prototype, so it's not like we got uh, some fresh, awesome new production <laughs> copy of the game. But adventurers, be aware that we were provided a copy of Weavelings in the Wild. Yes, yes, yes. You showed me that uh, yesterday at the shop. Mm-hmm. This comes from Jonathan Flake and it's published by Atomic Automation. So, so Scott, I'm scrolling through Facebook the other day. Specifically, there's, you know, you have your Facebook groups. One of them is for reviewers and media in board games. And it tends to be a place where like smaller companies or, or individuals, right. they can look to see if a reviewer has time to give their game a bit of attention. And that's where I saw Weedlings in the wild. And now I'm not going to lie. I knew almost nothing about it, but the art looked kind of cool. And the BGG description grabbed me. Check this out. Weedlings in the wild is a fantasy grid-based solo card game where you must capture the fauna of the tender wilds and trap cards and lure Weedlings back home with the promise of succulent meat. <laughs> Collect 10 Lord population to win. Receive 10 wounds, run out of traps, or lose 10 population, and you lose. So you know, if you combine, combine the art with that that little uh, mechanical, mechanical mechanism breakdown, and I was like, okay, I, I'm interested. I'm interested, and thankfully, Jonathan forwarded us a copy right away. So what's going on in Weavelings in the Wilds? Well, you've got a deck of a little over 50 cards containing the Weaveling characters you're trying to bring home, beasties that want to eat them, and traps that'll capture the beasties so you can turn them into meat to lure those Weavelings along. Now, there's also a few events in the deck and some special spell cards that you can acquire as well. At the start of the game, here's what makes this unique. You set up a grid of three rows, four cards each. You pick a space to start, you plop your Traveler card there, and then you flip up all the cards and you're ready to go. So a round, first phase of a round, when you get to take your four actions. Obviously you have movement, which is simply moving the traveler card along this grid, but kind of neat, you switch places with the card as you go. So if I'm in the very first row, the very top left of the grid, and I want to move to the right, I basically switch those two cards. The card that was in slot two goes into slot one where I was. So as you're moving, you're just placing cards, kind of cool. If you're adjacent to a spell, you get to add it to your hand for free. Now you're going to be looking for trap cards because that's how you get the beasties and turn them into meat. So if you find yourself next to a trap card, you can acquire it. You can also spend an action to arm a trap, which usually means taking out a beastie. Mm -hmm. Next up, you get to lure the weavelings, which is where you can discard meat. Any beasties that you kill, they're going to go to your hand and they have a meat number on them. You can discard them and say, okay, well, this one's three meat. I'll get that weaveling and that weaveling. And you add them to your, your rescued or saved population, right? Right. The third phase, dinner time for the beasties. This is where the beastie cards get to eat the weevlings that are adjacent to them. Specifically, they have little jaws symbols, like teeth, mm -hmm. right? And it, like one of them, it might have uh, jaws on the top and the bottom of the card. That means if there's a weevling above him or below him in that grid, he's going to eat it. And it goes into the lost pile where you don't want to see 10 stack up or you'll lose. Finally, the travel phase where you're actually going to shift that bottom row out of the game shift rows one and two down to make space at the top of your grid for a brand new section of four wash rinse repeat and if you save weedlings with a total population score of 10 you win however you'll lose the game if you lose 10 of those weedlings or take 10 wounds all right i, I mean it sounds pretty pretty simple there but um mm -hmm. you're you, you kind of got me lost on something here how is it you take all a right. wound 
Oh, good, good. Um, okay, so the beasties, they all have uh, like a wound marker in the middle of the card. So whenever you take a beastie, uh, it, it's got the number in the middle. It's it's depicted by like scratches. So when a beastie is on the very bottom row and it shifts out of the mm-hmm. grid, if you didn't kill it and it shifts out of the grid, it goes into your wound pile. He, he damaged you, he attacked right. you, and he sits off to the side and it has a number there. And what's kind of cool is anytime you have to reshuffle the deck as you're filling the rows and whatnot, all of the beasties, all of all of the cards... You can turn them like tapping them in magic. You turn them 90 degrees and that little wound wheel, It's it's got four numbers on the north, oh. south, east, and west. So the north number is the amount of wounds that you have. Most of them just say one. So I, this beastie went off the board. He went to my wound pile. I have one damage. I have to reshuffle the deck. I turn that card 90 degrees. Ooh, that one turned into a two. So it actually can creep up on you a bit. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I know you showed it to me yesterday, but I had a lot of things going on. I didn't really notice all those little intricacies there. So there's more than meets yeah, the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that one of the things I liked was whenever you showed the wheel on the the meat ones... Oh, the, well, those are the beasties because they do offer the meat, but then the weevlings that weevlings, you're collecting, that's what it was. They, have, they have the heart yes. symbols. And then uh, they and have like the heart symbol and a broken heart symbol, but they're not in the same place on the different cards. So it's not uh, like the same thing that goes on. So you, it's not like you're going to say, oh, this weevling here is going to do this. I'm going to turn it and it's going to work out fine. No, it's different for each one. So that shows that they put a lot of thought into this. Now, the other thing mm, that also- Different values per- The other thing that also is really I- impressive with it whenever you're playing it was the events. Now, touch on that because I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Okay. So the, the deck 55, I want to say there's like five events in that deck. I, I didn't actually go through and count, but it's a small number of events. And typically what they're going to do is when this event comes out, you actually just discard the event, put it in the discard pile, and then start milling cards from the top of the deck until you hit a certain type of beastie. And it will take the place of that event card in the row. The significant portion of that is not that, oh, this event changed the game. No. What it did do is it milled cards from the top of the deck. And you don't want to have to reshuffle too many times because when you reshuffle, mm-hmm. your wounds go up. Your weevlings that you've captured, they're unhappy. You've got to spend meat to keep them happy if they're unhappy in order to retain that population number. Sometimes you're going to flip an event and it's only going to make you mill two cards. No big deal. Right. Sometimes it's going to make you mill 15 <laughs> and that changes the whole complexity of the game that that adds some pressure to you. Now you might be thinking, well, that means that you're not going to see as many events. Sure. But boy, what a what a great way to give a variable time meter, time mm-hmm. limit into the game. I like that. It changed the pressure from one play to the next. Yeah. One thing that I really liked with this is it, it seems to be that there are a lot more solo games coming out. And you stop and think about it. You can only do so much, but they are coming up with so many different ideas and plans to make each one of them really stand out and really be unique. And I think that's absolutely wonderful what they're doing there. You know what happened when we got For Northwood in? You remember For Northwood? For Northwood! So I'm sitting there playing that one at the yellow table upstairs. I, there's there's no story behind the yellow table. It's just a table that's yellow. And, and anytime I need Sarah to eat dinner, Sarah, we're going to eat at the yellow table. So they, it's it's never just the table. I'm sitting there playing for Northwood and I was like, why would anybody ever play solitaire? You know, and like uh, playing some of these clever one player games makes me wonder who's 
getting a standard deck of cards and playing solitaire. It's got to just be because that's the only game you know and you're bored out of your mind because there are so many phenomenal solo games that are much more engaging, much more puzzly with different variables, different time restraints like we have here. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, boy, just fantastic little game now before we we leave this this is something here i feel like i'm i just like had a few drinks and watched the yellow submarine with the blue meanies and everything in this so <laughs> the theme of this is you're trying to find weevils weevlings with a v all right yep. without okay explain to me what is the theme here yeah, so I, I guess I didn't get into that. Uh, you know what, Scott? I'm going to take this right from Kickstarter. I was going to read it from the rule book, but it's on Kickstarter. The legendary Fate Weaver Zadara has put her chubby Fate Weavelings on a diet before they gorge her out of her house and hovel. This has not gone over well, and the Weavelings have fled to the nearby tender wilds in search of delicious meats. <laughs> they were hungry. They ran off. Fearing the worst for her beloved Weavelings, Zadara has sent you her prized weevling trapper to bring them home. That's what you're doing out there. That That's why you're trying to hunt down these weevlings. I love the fact that I could just imagine getting there and sitting in front of people saying, all right, all right, stick with me. Here. All right, here's what's going to happen. But no, it was such a neat little game. And I love the travel phase and how that would move down. Really unique mechanics to this game. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. I will say I like that it plays in about 20 minutes or less, has varying difficulty. Further Adventures, the prototype copy, which, by the way, had pretty excellent oh, yes. quality and art. It hardly felt like your standard tossed together prototype, even at a nice box. The prototype had two expansions inside that I think Jonathan means to have as stretch goals or add-ons for the campaigns. And when you had that little extra variability, I think it gives, gives me a reason to keep busting this out. One more X Factor. You can back this game, Scott, for 20 bucks. Oh, jeez. Heck, for six bucks, you can get the print and play. Six bucks. <laughs> and I think that's a no-brainer. Very, very cool. Yes. So, uh, oh, God, what was... I'll do it. Weevlings in the wild. I, I keep on wanting to call them weevils. <laughs> <laughs> Weebles in the wonderland. <laughs> One of the most popular games in the hobby and the oldest in the BGG Top 100 is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm -hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, -E -E the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. Scott, you take the floor. Tell me about a game you've been playing. All right, so 
this one kind of takes place out in the wild as well. And we got a chance to play Mountains Out of Molehills. Now, this is right, right. Uh, published by the op, designed by Jim DiCamillo and Patrick Marino. This is another one of those games similar to a lot of people maybe seeing their uh, shipments come in. And one we're going to talk about sometime here in the near future, Blocking Key, where you have double layer game board that you're playing on. I even said to you yesterday, I was like, man, we've had a thing for double game, yes. board, like game boards stacked on top of each other. Exactly. And this was one that I got at Origins with my very important gamer ticket that I got. So this was one that I got for free. You look at it, it looks adorable, and you're like, okay, I might get around to playing that. I tore that thing open, put it together. Number one, it has a great presence on the table. People mm -hmm. walk past and they're like, wait, what's that? What you playing? The other thing is, the moles that you're playing, You it plays up to four people. The moles mm -hmm. are these great little clear acrylic figures. They are just so detailed. I mean, one has like a backpack strapped to him with a lamp on his head. Another one's wielding like a pickaxe and a shovel like he's a ninja. Just very, very light, fun type of things here. I got to say, I'm not huge on standees, but if I'm playing with standees, those are awesome. Those look yeah, good. Yeah, and I tend to like these. If I'm going to play with standees, I really like this thing with the clear acrylic ones. It gives you a lot of detail. But it's not one of those things where it's so big and it topples over because it's top heavy or anything. I think they worked out really, really great here. Yeah, they got some heft now, to them. Now, Mountains on the Mole Hills, you're a mole and you're digging underground. So it's played over six rounds and each round has four phases. In phase one, players take turns drafting action cards. So you are basically programming what you're going to be doing your turn. This could be moving straight forward to two squares on the board. It could be turning and then moving one square, placing a rock somewhere on the board to screw up with other people's plans. These actions will move moles to the underground while adding molehill pieces to the bottom of the mountains above them. So as you're digging, you're going to be building mountains on the top part of the game board. Yeah. Now, in phase two, each player simultaneously determines the order they plan to resolve their actions. They place the cards face down in a stack from first action to last. Once the order is set, it can't be changed. You're stuck. And that's whenever you get a little bit nervous. Whenever someone goes before you and they flip over that rock and you're like, oh, God, this is going to screw oh, up my crap. whole plan. <laughs> <laughs> carefully planning will ensure that you take control of the most valuable molehills but be careful as your opponents may block your path throwing the rock in the way or even cause your mountains to topple over because they got too big uh, i'll get more into that here in a minute in phase three players take turns revealing the top card from their stack and resolving its action so you flip it over you do it in phase four players score the round now here's where it gets a little bit tricky Whenever you're scoring, whenever you dig and you make a mountain, you're underground. So your mountain is going to be building up from the bottom. So you will pick up whatever mountain is on top and you will place your piece underneath there. As you go along, you will get points for whatever mountain has your piece on the very bottom, counting each piece that's on top of it. Mm -hmm. You could be thinking, 
oh boy, I got a lot of stuff out here. And then someone else comes along and just snipes everything off of you, comes up right behind you and takes all your mountains off the top. Oh, that's the game. Oh, it's it's very tricky. But this game is very, very easy to pick up, very easy to, to learn. And the great thing about it is every game I played, the scoring has been down to like maybe five points in between all four players. It's been very, it's very be close. close. Yes. So you never really know who's going to win the game until the very end. Now, each round that you play, you have a limit as to how high your mountains can go. Uh, I believe the first two rounds, it can only go up to two blocks, three, I think it's four blocks, then five blocks, then six blocks. If, if I can interject, just to give a visual for the adventures, suppose that your mole on the bottom board is in the bottom left of the grid, and you move three spaces to the right. This whole creating mountains, all that means is each step that you move, you'll take a little block and you'll put it on the top board, showing yes. that like, you know how like in the old cartoons, when something would go underground, it would make like those ripples above ground. Mm -hmm. It, that represents the ripples above. So you place three blocks. And then if somebody else steps where there's already a block above board, well, they put their block underneath it when they go to add. So that when you say like that's how right, we're adding yes. mountains, that's how that's done. It's just when people move, they add blocks on top of the board. Yeah, I got a little excited about it. I, I'm glad you brought that <laughs> out there. But the thing that's also really kind of crazy is whenever you go along, you have those limits of how high your mountain can go. So if your mountain gets too high, well, that mountain's going to topple over. You then decide what direction that mountain is going to topple over. It could topple over on top of other pieces of yours to make your mountains even taller. Get that score up. And yeah. very much like pandemic, whenever you have one of those places where the epidemic breaks out, whenever your mountain topples over and it makes another mountain up too high, well, guess what? That one's going to topple. So you could have a whole chain reaction happening on top that could swing the score of the game a huge amount in another player's favor. So there's a lot more strategy going on in this than you would really think it is. I was very impressed with the uh, design of it, with the presence of the game and everything. All the pieces are very, very nice. The blocks that you have on top fit together nicely. They don't topple over easily. You could bump the table and, and for the most part, things aren't right, going right. fall out of whack. But yeah, for a free game that it just seemed like they were just giving out, like, I, I don't know if it was, they were trying to do that as a push to get that out there, to get word of mouth out there or just getting rid of games. I don't know, but I'm thrilled that I got this game. It is really a great game to pull out. It doesn't take you that long to play, 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes tops, and uh, it's it's fun. It's not one of those things where you get bogged down with a lot of strategy and you're really just sitting there thinking hard. It's really an impressive game. And you know what? I'm You said you don't get bogged down by strategy. I'm actually kind of surprised with how much you, you can invest into it. Oh, sure. This this is one of speaking with our discussion later on. This is a rules light game. 
But you can put an awful lot of thought and and strategically think about your turn and your plays. Obviously, what with the program and visualizing where you're going to be. But as you start building up mountains, uh, as you as you move around the board, like whose mountains can I snipe away, and then where can I create those those topples that are yes. going to cascade into another topple. It's a game that is really easy to pick up and play, but you can invest a lot of time and effort to play very well. Oh, most certainly. And I mean, a lot of times if you're playing with newer players, don't even think about it. Just play out your cards. It just makes it for a fun experience playing with each other. There's nothing that really destroys any move you have. If you run into the rock, well, you roll the rock die and then it will tell you what direction you're going to go. If you run Mm -hmm. into the end, well, you just stop your turn and then you pick up from where you were. And it's great also because they have different boards for if you're playing for two people or three or four people. The two player one is a little, I believe it's a four by four. It's a little bit tighter. Yes. And the larger one is a six by six. So you have a lot more room to move around. That thing gets really crowded very quickly with the mountains on the top portion. Let me go back to these standees. These are the acrylic clear plastic standees with the artwork on yes. them. I also got the Disney Sorcerer's Epic Arena. Oh, yes. I got a copy of that. And the, the op did the same treatment there. Those those standees, those characters have the same treatment. So, Adventure, if you've played either of these games, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These have a film, like a piece of plastic on each side that you peel off, which we've seen in other products in life where you get something that's got like nice clean plastic. It usually has that like blue film and you peel it off. These have it too. It's a clear plastic. It's not blue. It is so hard to peel the plastic (laughs) off. I was sitting there fidgeting, fidgeting with a piece the entire game and I could not get the piece of plastic. And I know it's on there. I know there's the ones for Disney's uh, Epic Arena at home. Mm-hmm. I was using my X-Acto knife. That's how I was able to actually get those those film pieces off of the standees. They so, are difficult. Minor, minor gripe. They are difficult, <laughs> but they're so pleasing. Whenever you catch that corner, it's like, ah, oh, and then they come oh, off. Yeah. Oh, that is such a great moment. <laughs> Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release, only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. The perk, just for you, is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up. 
Scott, I want to talk about one from Vin Goosens from The Game Brewer. This is a 2022 game. Almost all species of oak trees live at least 200 years, and some can survive for thousands. One oak tree planted by King John has survived for 800 years through the reigns of 35 other monarchs. My personal favorite thing about an oak is its use in barrel form to assist in the aging process of wine, whiskey, and brandy. Huzzah! So we're going to be talking about the board game Oak, which puts you in the role of a leader of one of four different druid orders, with which you're attempting to establish that your order deserves to be chosen by the Arch Oak's spirit to stay and learn its secrets. Uh, So you may recall this one from Kickstarter last year, but now that it's been played, let's talk about it. At its core, this is a hand management worker placement game. And the hand management portion is relevant because when you want to play a worker, you've got to have the card in hand that allows for that placement. So let's go to the main board. We've got the titular oak tree, as well as three primary worker placement locations, each of them broken down into three spaces that'll actually house a worker, or in the case of this game, a druid. Mm -hmm. The main board has about 10 more druids for each player that you might be able to unlock or utilize throughout play. Each player actually starts the game with their own player board and three druids, as well as a deck of three cards with which you'll use to place them on the work placement spots. Following along so far? Yeah, I think so. Yes, yes. Okay, there's a bunch to this game, so I'll try and make it simple. The trick here is that each of your cards, each of your three, they represent one of the three locations on the board and the cost to play the card, and it shows you what you gain in that location depending on where you place the druid. So of the three locations, I'm just going to call them one, two, and three. If I have my card for location one, it's going to say what it costs if I want for location 1A, 1B, or 1C what it costs, what I get out of it, etc. What do these placement spaces provide? First off, you can get ingredients. You can use them to brew a potion, which is like a, typically a one-time effect. Okay. You can unlock new druids uh, from the player from the main board to your player board, but there's actually some really interesting options for you as well, and that's that's kind of what I want to get into with Oak. You might move a druid from the game board. One of the actions you can do is take one of those 10 extra druids, move it from the game board up the oak tree in the middle. Now, this isn't 3D like Evertree. It's, it's just printed on the board. Okay. And it gives you these tracks, uh, no pun intended, but branches upon which you can move the druid. And they provide you with residual income throughout play. So it gives you an opportunity to maybe shoot for a long game in that regard. You know how most worker placement games, you really want more workers? Yes, yes. Well, you do here too. Okay. (laughs) But to get them them an oak, you have to build shrines to house them. You only have three spots on your board to actually place workers. So if you want more workers, you've got a little bit of extra work to do. Creature cards are available also. They provide either one-shot or ongoing effects, which are going to make your play more asymmetric compared to other players. And then you also can get artifacts, which might be my favorite part of the game. The artifacts, Scott, they are round cardboard tiles with four point markers going along one side of them. When you get an artifact, the the right side of your player board has these two little crescents cut out because your circular artifact piece will fit right into that inset circular portion of your player board, right? Wonderful component of play. Now, the artifacts are powerful, and they are good for just points, But I think ideally you want to be utilizing them because once they sit in that spot, that semicircle, there's like an arrow showing how many points it's worth. And you put it in its first slot and it's worth, say, 
eight points or whatever. You can activate your artifact as one of your actions, which just means rotating it a little bit and usually losing some number of points to mm-hmm. get the reward on the artifact. So like you can you can tap into the power of the artifact at the cost of some points to get more benefits and it opens up some really cool combos. One of our plays, the the artifact that uh, I think it was Ryan was using it, it didn't actually have a cost of points to use. It was a little bit weaker than other artifacts, but you could just ding it three times with no point cost. He found a companion card that provided the ability to crank that artifact back to its starting position. Oh, wow. And then he got to effectively rely on using that basically every turn with no consequences. And there's a ton of artifacts and a ton of companions to look for to try and find these these really sweet little combos. One more thing, uh, and then we'll say you can ask away, okay? This game comes with little accessories for your druid meeples. Like, um, you remember Gamelin Games? They do that with the Tiny Epics. I think it was Tiny Epic Adventures. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, where you can, like, click things. They have that, too. So, like, if you get one of the Elder Druids, you can you can tap a, a little cloak. It just drapes right over the meeple, and he's wearing a cloak. <laughs> it makes for a really, really cool presentation on the board. Fantastic, fantastic playthrough of Oak. What do you got, Scott? I, yeah, I got some stuff here. So what I'm trying to figure out here is, number one, it seems like there is a lot of stuff going on in this thing. Does it get overwhelming with all the extra stuff that's going on? Well, it's not a light game. Uh, that's for sure. And I, my rundown didn't exactly I, – I, I don't know that I can – capture the complexity of the game. I don't think gamers that play heavy games are going to call this heavy, but there are restrictions on your placements. Uh, you have to have an available worker. Sure. That's mm-hmm. standard. We're all expecting that. Plus you need the card that allows you to place where you want. Right. Plus you need the resources required by that card. And even then you got to hope that that spot isn't already taken. Right. Right. You can get creatures, shrines, asymmetric player boards, potions, artifacts, upgraded druids. None of these rules are hard to digest, but there are a lot of them. And it's the combination of them is a little bit different from what we've seen in other games. Once you have those rules down, I want to say by round three, we were starting to get into the swing of things and this game was singing. I think most folks are going to have a complete understanding of the game's mechanisms after just one play. But for casual gamers, this is going to be a tad overwhelming. How do you win at this game? I know you see there's a lot of stuff here, getting the points and everything. Is it just based on the number of points you have or what's the win condition? Um, well, points, yes. And and how do you go about it? The artifacts, artifacts will give you points. Some of the potions will give you a one shot. Many of the cards that you acquire plus residual income from sending druids up the oak tree. Some mm-hmm. of them can hit point like you hit this spot, you get X number of points. Or you hit this spot and every income step, every solstice, you'll get X number of points. Uh, game plays over a set number of rounds. And once the rounds are done, it's who has the most points. Yeah. Now, here's the big one here. Did you back it or are you looking to buy it when it comes out? What's What's your final thought on it? Well, I didn't back it. It was up a year ago, and I think it was one of those funds are tight situations. And Adventures, I don't back a lot of games. I listen, we, Scott, we listen to a lot of shows, and some of them, like the Cabal, they're notorious for like, they'll talk about a Kickstarter game, and two of the, the founders will be like, oh, I just clicked back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, yep, we yep. all know someone who, who backs Dawn. everything. Dawn. <laughs> I don't back a whole – I don't think either – you probably back more than I do, and you don't back a whole lot of games on Kickstarter, do you? 
Um, it, it would be smaller ones that I'll do or something like that. Very rarely do I go with a really big game. Okay. Uh, for me, it's typically a game that that we were really taken aback by in reviewing it on the show or having the, the, the folks that created it on the show. And I think it just gets me that m- much more excited. I played right. it already, so I know what I'm getting into. That, that tends to be what I back. Um, I didn't back it, but man, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> My, I think my initial impression is that there are multiple ways to pursue victory in the game. I want to explore that more. I want to see more of these combos. And when you couple it with the, the rich artwork, the quality components, I can see this coming to the table regularly with, with the lobsters, with you and Tom. Get Dawn in there. I, I think most of the groups that we play games with, this is media, not like it's not super light. Uh, it's not light at all, really. It's it's on the heavier side of medium. It's right in our wheelhouse, right in our sweet spot. And there's right. enough change up from one play to the next. And I could see this one getting on the table every other week for the next several months, several months out. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this on BGG, and this is one here that, yeah, I I don't think that I would want to go for the late pledge or with they have that or anything like that at all. I want to wait till this comes out to buy it because it looks like it's going to tap into those things. Like you said, so much into what I enjoy in a game that I don't want to give them my money and then sit here and wait and have to wait, wait, have the excitement. We, I want the instant gratification of going to the shop, picking it up and ripping it open. Speaking of ripping, you played some exit shadows over middle earth. That's next on the list. I know you started to tell me about it yesterday. I'm very interested to hear your not off the cuff, your formal thoughts about exit <laughs> shadows over middle earth. Well, exit shadows over middle earth. Whenever I go traveling, I like a lot of people, you probably try and base who you're going to be with on games that you want to play. You want to play something that you Wait, enjoy. shouldn't that be the other way around? Well, no. I, hey, base hey, the hey. games on who you're going to be with? I'm I'm a game sommelier, so I'm busy figuring out who I'm going to be with, what games will... It's not like a kind of pirate? Oh, Patrick, Patrick, Patrick. <laughs> I've never heard sommelier before. Oh, you haven't? Nope. Don't, Somalia, don't know what that, that means. is a person that comes up to you that acts very snooty and brings out the wine to you and tells you what was so good about the wine and what will be the perfect wine pairings and everything. That's a sommelier. That sounds pompous. I'm glad I don't know. <laughs> so I like to think of myself as a game sommelier. Fair point. Okay. But yeah, so I try and think of games that will uh, work well with the people that I'm with. So one of the people I work with, she really enjoys Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So I was out and I saw Exit Shadows Over Middle Earth. Let's give it a try. I've played the Unlock games and I love those things. Those things are great. They have the little app there with it. Uh, you punch in the codes. It tells you whether you're right, you're wrong. It'll be great. So I got Exit and number one, uh, it was different. It wasn't just your little deck of cards with numbers or letters uh-uh. on the back of it. You open it up and you have a, a decoder wheel with like, you feel like you're going to be figuring out World War II codes or something with this thing. So be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> <laughs> Crummy commercial? Son of a... <laughs> 
So you have the decoder uh, wheel. You have a booklet with all these different pictures in it. You have three different decks of cards that are in there. A bunch of stuff that you have to punch out. You have the nine uh, witch riders that you had to punch out and put them together. The Nazgul? All sorts of things going on. Yes. So all this stuff you're putting together in this box. So basically, unlike Unlock, once you're done with this game... You're done. You're uh, done. It's going to be hard to kind of put the genie back in this bottle. We're playing it, and you flip over a card. And boy, oh boy, I tell you what. This was a two-star out of three to do this. So I'm figuring it's medium weight. It won't be that it's bad. It's like the difficulty? Yes. Okay. So I flip it over, and we flip over the first card. We just sit here staring at each other like, what the hell are we supposed to do? It didn't, like, hold your hand at all. It just dumped you right into this thing. So as you go along, you're basically playing the Fellowship of the Ring. And you have the big party for Bilbo. And you have different things that you have to look on this page and match up certain symbols. And then that will lead you to something else where you flip over another card. And each time you flip over a card, there's going to be a big X on it. Mm-hmm. where you really stop and you reconsider your life choices for the day and uh, realize <laughs> that you're a failure, and then you put it back, and then you go back to looking at it again. So we kept on doing this, and we were getting more and more, I'll be honest, upset. Because each time you go along here, in Unlock, you can punch in the thing and ask for a hint for something. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't have that app availability. It has a deck of cards where you have three hint cards. Well, there's two hint cards and one answer card for each one of the pages of the book. So as you go through there, we're taking a look at it. And you look at the first one. Well, not everything comes in a box. What is that supposed to mean? You got to look on the outside of the box. or Well, yes. Something that was over The second one. We figure it out. You have to look at the outside of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no way of knowing whenever we played this that everything is involved with this. The box, the instructions, everything is involved in this. That saying, this was extremely top-notch, clever, putting things together. Mm-hmm. The people that put this mystery together they really had their thinking caps on for this. Whenever you stop and you look back on it, maybe we didn't have the best experience doing it, mm-hmm. but you really have to appreciate the work that went into this to make this thing. It really was tremendous. You had to fold up a map. It was the whole thing with Shelob, the spider. And as you're folding it up, you see little runes popping up. Well, that's going to lead you to something else. So as it went along, you really did appreciate what went into it. It wasn't the greatest experience. It took us about 90 minutes to get through it. Now, granted, our score, they have a scoring of up to five stars. We got four stars out of five. So Oh, wow. We must not have that, been that, that bad. Yeah, yeah. We must not have been that horrible. But I might like to go try another one of these just to see what it's like again. But still, I think I prefer the unlock ones a lot better. But Exit Shadows Over Middle Earth, if, I mean, hey, right now you've got the Rings of Power show on um, Amazon Prime. Lord of the Rings has always been popular. This is a perfect time to go out and pick that up. 
get a bunch of people. Now, that could be something else where we only had two people doing Two this. minds, yes. If you have more people doing it, it may make it a lot easier as well. You said it took 90 minutes to get through. Did you guys eventually win? Uh, yes, yes. We finally finished it up and everything. Okay. And it's it doesn't go to the very end. So there's definitely room for them to put in another one here and out onto the second movie and the third movie if they want to do uh. that as well. If you are a big Tolkien fan and Lord of the Rings fan, it's 14 bucks. Go give it a try. I oh, mean, it's, it's worth it. Scott, one more I'm going to squeeze in because I'm super excited for it. This is one that I had on my list for things that I was excited to play at Gen Con, and I actually didn't play it at Gen Con. Ryan picked up a copy. He learned it. We played it on TTS, and that is Terracotta Army from Adam Kopinski, Zemislaw Fornal. This is published by Borden Dice, obviously 2022. Brand new game this one is Emperor Kinshi Huang has passed away. To protect him in the afterlife, a great army in the form of statues of faithful warriors must be assembled to stand guard in the emperor's tomb. You will be among those tasked with building this magnificent army. Interesting theme. Oh, Oh, yes. It's different, right? Okay, so I did some diligent minimal research, which included like one Google search, and it seems that in ancient times, it wasn't all that uncommon for someone of great importance to be buried in a tomb with statues of soldiers sculpted and displayed at the entrance to serve as like guardians for the deceased. I suppose someone had to build those statues. <laughs> that That's what we're doing here. So thematically, that's going to be hit or miss for a lot of folks. But hey, if nothing else, it is different. So let's start with some basic gameplay elements. What are we doing in Terracotta Army? First and foremost, this is a Euro game. There is basically no luck. Nothing is left to chance here. Okay. The board depicts two main areas of play. First, a resource wheel. And then second, a grid which represents the tomb in which the army is going to be built. And I want to start with the resource wheel. I'm here. in so already. Simple enough. You don't have yeah? to talk anymore. Oh. It's got a research wheel. I said wheel. resource wheel. Yep, I'm in. Okay, so... It's, Basically, there's only two primary resources in the game, coin and wet clay, both of which are acquired via that resource wheel. Yes, there's also dry clay, but when you collect it, the the only use for it really is to convert it back into wet clay. It's more of a byproduct of playing a game than an actual resource that you strive to obtain. So how does the resource wheel work? Simple. Uh, It's divided into three rings, an inner, a middle, and an outer ring. Each player gets a number of meeples, depending on the number of players. Going around the table, on your turn, you place a meeple on the outside, uh, we'll say slice of the wheel that you'd like to activate, just like a work placement spot. You carry out the inner ring action, then the middle, and then the outside. And what are these actions actually doing? Well, to start, obviously, you've got coins or wet clay that you might collect. Mm-hmm. Great. Then you have spaces where you can hire a master, which is basically how you're going to spend your coins often. You put a little tile on the appropriate space below the board depicting the master that you're hiring, which, of course, depends on the symbol of the resource wheel that you're activating. These masters, Scott, they give you like a one-time effect whenever you hire the master. And then in subsequent rounds, anytime that you activate a a slice of the wheel that has that master symbol, you get to trigger it again. Oh, wow. Okay. Does make for some some intriguing plays, but we'll get there. One of the main portions of the wheel, though, are the spaces that allow you to trade wet clay to build a warrior statue. Now, these warriors they sit off to the side of the board, and they come in four different types. When you build a warrior, 
you place it on one of your bases. So they, much like in like Blood Rage, you know, they had the rings oh, yes, you could yes. click on. The, basically that, only they're, they're square because the grid is square. You put it into the tomb in any location you like. Further, and I won't go into too much detail about how this is done, but each warrior has a means of paying an, a coin or a resource to get an extra benefit, usually allowing for some kind of point scoring or manipulating the positioning of warriors that are already in the tomb. Okay. okay. All right. Why are we doing this? For scoring. First, you might trigger a space on the wheel that lets you build a specialist statue. Simply put, these are statues that don't belong to anyone. You don't click a base on them, but they do provide an end of round or an end of game scoring based on the alignment of the warriors around them. Mm. That's a lot to soak in. So I'll give you a quick example. There's a musician piece. Mm -hmm. And all it does is whenever someone builds it, they don't put their base on it. They just put it in there and it's an end game or end of round. What this one does is he counts each piece in the row and in the column. And at the end of each round, for every piece you have, you will get a point. For every piece your opponent has, they will get a point. Oh, wow. And interestingly, that musician doesn't belong to anyone. So if you build a musician, I have reason to build in those rows and columns, but you're probably putting it somewhere where you're already up mm -hmm. five pieces to two, right? At the start of the game, there are five scoring tiles placed in the scoring area, and all these are is end-of-round scoring tiles, much like in Barrage, how it had that end-of-round scoring oh, yes, tiles yes. at the top of the board. This has those as well, and oftentimes they care about the statues on the board or their alignment. So like I was playing a game with Ryan, and uh, our first scoring tile was who has the most pieces in the bottom left quadrant of the tomb map, right? Okay. That person gets seven points. Second place will get two points. So there can be a lot of scoring. And that actually goes up exponentially as the rounds continue. Finally, you've got two inspector pieces. Follow me here. These are on the X and Y axis of the tomb grid. All right. Each starting in the first space and progressively working their way towards the end of their respective axis. Granting points at the end of the round for whoever has more pieces in that respective row or column. Okay. And you can actually manipulate those throughout play. So if I know that like, oh, end of this round, I'm going to get you know eight points from this one because I've got a whole bunch of dudes there. Well, there is a space on the wheel where someone might be able to activate and move that inspector along, thus cheating me out of those points, right? So th there's a lot of play in every little aspect of this game. Briefly back to the wheel and maybe the best design decision here. When it's your turn to place a worker on that wheel, you can first pay two coins and you can rotate the center or outer tile one space. Oh, wow. And that gives just so much agency in what, oh, they took the space that gives the uh, two clay for a soldier. Well, that's okay. If you have the coin, you can rotate the wheel. You can take it. And who knows what's going to be in the middle mm -hmm. ring or the first ring to, to get to trigger. So you can actually manipulate the actions a little bit with your coins. So for the round, each player takes turns placing their meeples one at a time until they're all placed, at which point the end of the round scoring takes place and a new round begins with income. The game plays for just five rounds, and at the end there's some, well, there's actually a lot of final scoring to perform, <laughs> and the high scoring player has done the best job of constructing the terracotta. Uh, the Tupperware The game army. plays for just... <laughs> <laughs> the Tupperware army. The end of five rounds, high score has done the best job of assembling the terracotta army and wins the game. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this and it really looks like a tremendous game there. Now, is there a lot of inter like competitive play against the players or is it just kind of like 
you're playing your game, your opponent's playing your game? Is there a lot of interaction between you? There is. You know what? You're not going to be attacking each other. There's interaction not in like what you find in in a game of risk, right? It's right. not access and allies. Uh, you're not negotiating in any way. It's that old school worker placement thing of I'm going to take this spot because it's the best one. And then the opponent says, okay, I think next turn he's going to take that spot. So if I take it first, I can get the benefit. Oh, but if I move the inspector, you know, there there's – it's not direct. You know what I mean? Right. I'm not punching you in the face. I'm setting a rake in your yard so that later on you step <laughs> on it and it goes and smacks you in the face, right? That's that's sort of the the level of interaction here. It's it's subtle and it's indirect, but it is every single play. You have to be conscientious of what your opponent might want to do and what you can do to interact with that in a way that negatively impacts them while positively, of course, impacting yourself. And now looking at this and you say about the number of decisions you have to make and you can turn mm -hmm. the wheel and everything, is yeah. this game ripe for analysis paralysis? That's a good question. Um, yes, I'm going to say yes. We didn't have it in our game, but I think I think Ryan and I both tend to be players that like we're not going to sit for six minutes and try and figure out the best play. We're willing to just, okay, I think this looks like a pretty good play. Might not be the best play, mm -hmm. but it's going to be pretty close to the best play. So I'm just going to go with this because it's what's in front of me. Um, let's transition that a little bit into the variability. Tactically, and probably obviously, the, the positioning of the wheel and the changing actions, depending on where the wheel is and, and what actions are in that wheel, that's a tactical decision that does take a, a little bit of thinking. And then you have the variability of the scoring tiles and the scoring of those inspectors going along the two axes. Those scoring tiles, you use five of them in the game out of the 12 that come in the box. Okay. Plus the order that they're in matters. Uh, that's a lot to consider. Never mind that if if the only scoring was the endgame scoring based on the warrior grid, mm -hmm. that tomb, if that was the only factor, well, I tell you, that's a lot to consider. Oh, yeah. Some of these statues want to see who has most guys uh, in the adjacent tiles, like the donut around this piece. Who has majority there? The musician, as I mentioned, said he looks at rows and columns. The inspectors look in various spots. That is an awful lot to consider. And I glossed over it, but your generic warriors that you can build to put in, they all have an ability that you can spend a coin and flip a tile to be able to use it. One of them, he says, I get to pull something closer to me. The archer says, how far away is the farthest piece from me? Score that many points. So you could sit and calculate for minutes, minutes at a time, every decision in the game, I think it's probably not going to thrive if you're playing with, I don't know, accountants and tax collectors. <laughs> you you got to play it with people that are willing to like kind of go with their gut, right? Otherwise, it, it does have the danger uh, of becoming uh, a slog. Uh, just so you know, um, I do have a degree in accounting. I didn't know that. Yes. I really There's, put it to I've, good work. <laughs> Yeah. And here we are sitting doing a board game podcast. Exactly. It's got two more things. I'll go over the components and some final thoughts. This game comes with 60 miniatures and the player bases to put them in. You got a warrior organizer box so that it's easy to set up and easier to uh, easy to tear down. That wheel on the board, it comes with those little cog things. You know, like the, the black plastic pieces, oh, yes, like yes. one's male, one's female, and you just push them together. You see it on dials, like for like player dials. It's got that so that it holds the wheel on the board. Mm -hmm. 
Some final thoughts, this is an action selection puzzle that takes careful consideration. Every turn is important, and every warrior placement even more so. This isn't a game that's going to stir up laughter around the table. There's no hidden traitor. This is a thinker that I think is usually going to be won by whoever puts some more time and consideration into their placements. It's satisfying, and it's a rewarding Euro. And if you like games that put your brain to task... I think you're going to love Terracotta Army. It does look like a, a, a great game there. I, I've definitely got to look into this one. That's his name. Did you know that? What, his name is that that long breath, that long... Yes, uh, the trumpeter's... What, exhale. Uh, yeah, his name is... <sighs> Scott, we've got a, a change in the top 10. This is a monumental what? day. A change in the top 10. A game has risen a spot. That is Arc Nova is up to number six. Ooh. It is pumping the brakes a little bit. It got up to seven within, what, six months? And then it, it took a little while to yeah. get to the sixth spot. It bumped Twilight Imperium down to number seven. I don't know how to feel about this one. Twilight Imperium, fourth edition, down to number seven on account of Arc Nova continuing the meteoric rise. Okay. New highest peaks, we've got three of them this time. Obviously, Arc Nova's higher than it's ever right. been at number six. Cascadia at 62, and Kanban EV at 82. Okay. Lastly, happy birthday to Robinson Crusoe. Adventure on the Cursed Island's been in the top 100 for nine years. I don't know why I thought it was longer than that. It just always seemed like it's always been there. Uh, they have a second. Ed they had a first and then a second edition. Right? I, I would imagine that this is strictly the second edition. Oh, uh, that could be. Yes. Tell you what, man, that was a long first half of the episode. Whew. So we got to get on with it. We got a big review today. This one is Rise of the Gnomes from August Games. We had a lot to talk about. I'll do the uh, walkthrough and you do the flavor and I'll meet you back here. Okie dokie. Designed by Daniel George and published by August Games in 2021, Rise of the Gnomes is an area control game that puts players in the position of brewery managers in the fantasy land of Brumancia. The basic premise is that while players are competing to attract customers and build new breweries throughout the land, the game fights back with a faction of its own, the Gnomes. Oh, and let's factor in a destructive dragon for good measure. Now, before explaining how the game is played, I'd like to point out that this walkthrough is for the competitive mode of play. The game also includes rules for solo play, cooperative play, and cutthroat play, while the game's listing on the BGG forums even includes a one-versus-many variant. To begin the game, each player selects a color and receives three double-sided player boards to choose from, each representing a faction that they can play. When decided, the players collect all the pieces of their color and put them in specific areas on their player board. Namely, be aware that the customer cubes and brewery pieces on your board are covering up income and points that will only be unlocked as you get them off of your player board and onto the map. The gnome board is set up in much the same way. Now that map consists of hex tiles, starting with the fortress in the middle. This is where the gnomes are going to place their first brewery and starting customer cubes. Around the fortress, hex tiles representing different land types are placed, and this is where the players will begin. Another circle of hex tiles is added, and then more still, though face down, are added around that. Notably, the final ring of hex tiles is going to contain the dragon's lair. And don't worry, we'll get there. 
To start a round, cards are dealt to the middle of the table for players to draft. Now, these cards can offer a number of things, from a one-time injection of points or money to maybe your own personal worker placement space or even a static ability. Basically, these are cards that play a big role in differentiating player abilities. After cards have been acquired, players then take turns placing their brewery meeples. Yes, this is an area control game that functions via worker placement. The worker placement spaces are primarily found in two spots, the action board or the action card row. The board is easy. Place a worker to the location, immediately get its benefit. The cards, on the other hand, while they're easy to understand, they work a little bit differently. See, there's a deck of 10 of these action cards, and at the start of each round, eight of them are dealt out into two rows of four. When placing a brewer meeple on an action card, it has a cost, which is even cheaper if you're the first person to place there. Plus, the action won't resolve right away. Instead, the actions on the cards resolve after every player has placed all of their brewery meeples. To keep it simple, the action spaces typically allow you to add more customers to your lands and remove opposition. Some spaces allow you to move pieces on the board, build breweries, brew beer, or trade in beer for coin, among others. When all actions are resolved, the gnomes get to take their turn, and this is done simply with a deck of cards. The top card is flipped up and it shows what the gnomes want to do. If they can't do the first thing listed on the card, then they do the second. And if they still can't do that action, they simply score some points. The number of cards flipped up each round for the gnome abilities, that's going to increase as the game progresses, so the pressure is always on. At the end of a round, players look for any uncovered coin and point symbols on their player board and collect accordingly, while the gnomes do the same. Then, it's on to the next round. Now this nasty dragon. As I mentioned, there is a dragon lair among the face-down tiles on the outer perimeter of the map. When a player expands adjacent to a face-down tile, it gets flipped up and is available for expanding into. However, if the dragon's lair is revealed, then a new phase is added to the game. From that moment forward, when revealing a card from the gnome deck in order to carry out the gnome turn, players also carry out the dragon action listed on the top of the card. Something simple, like the dragon piece moves to a forest if it is adjacent to one. The significance is that the dragon wants to blow stuff up. When it enters a tile, it destroys all breweries on that tile, as well as a number of customer cubes. But there's one thing dragons love even more than dealing wanton destruction, and that's gold. If the dragon enters your tile, you may pay a number of coins to bribe the dragon, avoiding the destruction that it would cause. After five rounds, the player with the highest score wins. That is, unless the gnomes have the high score, in which case the gnomes win and the players have lost. Now, as with all of our walkthroughs, there is more than what we briefly went over here. In the case of the Rise of the Gnomes, I didn't even touch on endgame scoring cards, traversing water tiles, or the other modes of play. Maybe most importantly, though, are the upgrades, which are unique to each faction, and obviously they're going to make your faction even more asymmetric and unique. Nevertheless, I hope this walkthrough gives you a sense of what's going on in this worker placement area control game. Now, how did it fare with the heroes? Let's find out in the 8-bit breakdown of Rise of the Gnomes. My gnome brothers and sisters, my name is Barry Loaf, and I stand before you as the new king and head brewer of Brumanica. For the past 200 years, these lands have enjoyed prosperity and peace built upon the backs of our creation. Beer! We have brewed some of the finest beers ever tasted. 
the golden summer pilsner, the frisky kissing lager, and the moldy fungal dunkel. These blue ribbon winning brews are gnome creations, and what do we get for our efforts? Just gold and the occasional accolade. We deserve more, and yet others are attempting to establish their own breweries and compete in our sacred industry. We have awoken Gloomtail the Eternal from her slumber, and soon she will feast upon our rivals. We shall take this opportunity to rebuild our brew empire from the ashes of destruction. The time of dwarves, humans, elves, orcs, halflings, and goblins has come to an end. Right. It is time for the rise of the gnomes. All right, adventurers, it's that time. We're going to give the 8-bit breakdown to today's review game, Rise of the Gnomes, starting with bit number one, the art and components. And Scott, we've got an overall pretty darn good production in this box. Oh my, yes. I was really impressed with this. Uh, I know you had played it more than I have, and getting a chance to look at it, it almost feels like they took a bunch of games and put them together to make this game. I mean, you have like a little bit of the look of Settlers of Catan. You have uh, some of the things like the board similar to uh, Dinosaur Island, where you put the workers at and all this different kind of stuff or take workers off. They did a real great job of getting everything working. And it's not like overwhelming with the extra pieces it's little one pieces mm -hmm. and that's what i think makes everything work so well for me in this game now our copy was a little extra blingy we had the uh with the metal coins upgrade we had the uh the overlays the overlays vitally yes. important now i don't know if that was an add-on or if that just came with the game i honestly don't know but they were a really nice addition because you know how like in terraforming mars if you bump that player sheet and you oh, mix gosh, up the yes. seven or ten cubes on it it's a problem in Rise, your player sheet has like 30 cubes and tokens and stuff on it, all sitting in their spots. That overlay was paramount, and I, I would dare say if it is an add-on, you got to get it. It's practically required in this game. We got some it nice. It really uh, makes you think if if going forward, if this is now going to be the norm, because I I don't see any game being that successful without having these type of overlays anymore now. Mm -hmm. We've got some nice thick tiles. The beer barrel markers, they bring some charm. They bring out some of the theme. And the laser cut dragon meeple, I'm sorry, that thing's awesome. Yeah. It was uh, a bit fearful watching that thing and just seeing it turn around on the map and think, oh, God. It is not a nice dragon. That's no. for sure. <laughs> We got some pretty darn good artwork, uh, considering that it's limited mostly to action cards and judge cards uh, on the table. Aside from the the color that comes from the territories, the hex map built out in the middle, and the colors from the cubes. As far as artwork goes, it's strictly going to be on on judge cards and some of the action cards that you draft at the beginning of the round. But I did like the art for what it's worth. Finally, I got to say, for a game that has a hefty, hefty dose of icons, I found it pretty intuitive. Most of the icons were pretty easy to digest, and most of the places where you see the icons, there's also accompanying text that says mm -hmm. exactly what it means. So if you ever slip up on – and I mean, how could you? They're all, they're all intuitive. Oh, yeah, and that was one of the best things there, I think, in – this is another great design plan that they had for this game. In – yeah, they used a lot of iconography, 
but they took the time to put the rules right there next to it, not having to go back to the rule book and uh, da, 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 da. oh, here it is here in it. Oh, go back to this page to find it. You know, everything's there in one place to make the ease of play very, very simple. Usually the barrier, the speed bump that a publisher runs into and why they don't put that text on the board is because if the game's going to be in multiple languages, uh, like if, if Rise of the Gnomes, it was strictly, I don't know, it, we'll say a, a German game. And they had the German text on it saying what it did. Well, that doesn't help mm-hmm. us at all. So they just forego putting anything on it rather than change it for every single edition. Uh, I'm gathering that this one, they don't have multiple languages. Or if they do, maybe they changed it for the other languages. I love whenever a game has the reminder text right below it. Well, and the other nice thing with this too is with those overlays, the overlays have no language on them whatsoever. It's only mm-hmm. the card for each one of the breweries that you have. So that would be so much easier to just print those four things out or eight things out, however many there are, just to slide underneath there. So that's a great design idea there as well, too. Bit number two, we look at the game's theme and our immersion therein. Scott, we've got an area control game where we're trying to get our customers and breweries onto the board and overtake everyone else. The worker placement spots have appropriate names like the Brew Festival and the action cards are all thematic to the game for the particular action they perform. But I got to say, I don't get the theme of brewing beer and appeasing cut. There's an action space where you go here and you get five beer tokens or eight beer tokens and appeasing customers. It, I didn't feel like I was producing breweries, even though that's what I'm doing in the game. It's hard to get immersed into that. Did, did you get any of the... I'm a beer crafter. I didn't get the idea that I was a beer crafter, but I did feel like I was a beer distribution god when playing this game here. (laughs) I really liked it because a lot of times area control, I'm not a big fan of. I'm not great at those. And then by the time that I'm done with the game, I'm frustrated. I'm just like, I hate this game. You don't like to be mean. Let's be honest. True, true. I want everyone to have fun. That's my biggest thing. But I felt more like I was a distribution mogul getting the beer out to people, not actually brewing it per se. But I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And with the dragon, you sit there and like, he's going to screw up my supply line. Uh, Son of a biscuit. And I got sucked into it, to be honest, because a lot of times... I will look at these things and I will distill them out to the bare minimum of I need to put dudes on the board and do this. Mm -hmm. This one here, I actually got into the theme of it. I really enjoyed it. I think with the dragon and the gnomes, that portion of the theme that I can buy into those gnomes. Holy crap. You're just you're just like trying to expand and run your business. And at the end of the round, these damn gnomes start multiplying and they take over space. They they get rid of your brood. They can be super pesky and you feel that way. Like, how many times does it feel like, okay, I think we beat them down. I think we can ignore them for like a turn. Yes. We bought ourselves time. And then you get to the end of the round and it's like, we did not buy ourselves time. These things are <laughs> relentless. You mentioned the dragon. And I love the dragon. So, so the, the way that it works, if it lands on a populated space, the brewery on it is going to die. And then a bunch of folks in that space are going to get blowed up. Yep. Unless you bribe the dragon with coin. 
And mm-hmm. there is some real tension at the end of the rounds. If you if you set yourself up, so, okay, I can bribe the dragon once, but if he comes after me again, ho, oh, and that third card flips up and that's where he gets you. Okay, I'll pay my coin. Oh, what's the fourth card going to be? Please don't let it land on me. That's tense. That's it. You feel the effects of that, don't you? Oh, d- most definitely. I mean, there's a lot of decision making into this. And like you said, the gnomes are such an X factor that they just beat you down in this game. Mm-hmm. Scott, is Rise of the Gnomes a complex game? Let's move to bit number three and look at the complexity. Where do you put this one? I would say I would put it on a little bit higher complexity. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. But once you get the flow of it, it's not that bad. It's just the whole idea of getting into it. You listening to you explain it to me. I'm just like, uh, I'm gazing off into the sunset. Drool's coming out of the corner of my mouth. I'm just, I'm, I'm checked out. It's a lot to digest but, yeah, or imbibe. But as we case. played it, it becomes simpler and easy, and you notice how the flow goes. Mm-hmm. And once you get into that moment there, you realize there is no spoon, and you're in the matrix. And it just really works out well, and I like the flow of it. That's my biggest word for this, for, for complexity. Once you get the flow, it's not that complex of a game. Did you feel, What did you think? Did you, let me ask you this. Did you feel by the end of our play... That if if I had to leave and someone said, hey, Scott, would you teach me how to play that? Did you feel like you could teach someone? I think I, I knew enough to be dangerous okay. with it. I would have to go back to the rule book a couple times for a little thing here and there. But other than that, no, I think it was pretty good there. Yeah, it's it's not a particularly difficult game to figure out, but there is a lot of stuff, right? As yes. far as complexity goes, you've got a basic worker placement game on one board. You've got a shifting selection of worker placement spaces on those action cards. And that's about it. But it helps to have one person at the table that's pretty affluent with the rules so that when it comes time to run the gnome's turn and the dragon's turn and the general order of operations, it'd be nice to have someone who has done it, you know, seen it, done it, so they Mm -hmm. can keep it flowing nicely. Because once you've, like you said, with that flow of the game, once you've got it down, it's not that difficult. It's really, it's a mid-weight game. But there are enough fine details that might have it a little on the heavier side of medium weight. Yes, yes, most definitely. Bit number four is the rule book, and I'll take that side since I taught it. Scott, there are four rule books that come with this thing. (laughs) Adventures, don't let that scare you off. There's an introduction booklet, which gives some basic overview and theme. Plus, there's a rule book for solo and co-op. Plus, there's a rule book for competitive and cutthroat and finally, there's a reference book that uh, – and it, when I say, re- oh, you need this giant reference, no. This is in the good way. Like any single individual card that you can come up with and be like, huh, I'm kind of hung up on what this does. You can open that last book. It's got every card, every tile in the game, every detail in the game so that if you should get hung up on something, you just reference this book and it clarifies. And the reason that there's four different rule books is because there are multiple ways to play the game. None of these rule books are convoluted or going to have you worried. Wait, what does that mean? Simple to digest, just a lots of ways to play. Scott, what did you think about the learning curve? Did you feel like you were grasping this one? Yes. Like you said, it took a little while to get all the things in your mind because you have the map that you're doing things. Plus, you have your own player board that you're doing things. Plus, you have the score thing that's going to show when the gnomes are going to come out. Mm-hmm. Plus, you have the cards that's going to flip over. 
there's a lot to this, but the way that you presented it, it came out very, very nice, which really does reflect on the rule book. So that helped you out a lot to teach this game. Tremendously. The other thing also, like I said earlier, with the design and putting the overlays there and having the description of each one of the icons, that made the simplicity of things really shine. Now, here we go here. Now, you think of gnomes, you think of drinking. It comes to meat. You got to have something to eat. So <laughs> the meat of the game, what did you think the meat of the game oh, was? Oh, it's an interesting one. Uh I mean, selecting action spaces with your workers, that's important. And doing so in a way that's efficient is important. And what I mean by that is the rotating action cards, right? Uh, there's, okay. Yeah. And I mentioned this in the walkthrough. You've got eight different action cards and they've each got three spots each. And they cost more beer as more people decide that they're going to place one of their workers there. So the first person on a card gets to use the ability for just one beer. Then the next person, two beer. And finally, the last person that makes it onto a card, three beer, if that space is even selected. So if you can visualize your turn and you can plan to move some of your customers and then you want to build a brewery and then you want to add three more of the uh, customer cubes there, that can all be done. But you don't have to select your actions in that order. You don't first have to take your meeple and be like, okay, I'm putting this one on the movement spot. No. Where is it in the action row? What's going to resolve first? How likely are other players to take that move spot <laughs> before you versus build a brewery before? You know what I'm saying? Like you have to factor in yeah. the timing of when the actions are going to resolve versus the likelihood that you can put off placing there until next round. Because, you know, we all want a brewery. And there's only one of those cards. I'm going to take that first spot and get my brewery for one beer. And then around the table, people are like, well, I don't want to miss out on a brewery. I'll take the two beer spot. I'll take the three beer spot. That card filled up. And when it comes back to you, ah, now I place on the movement because now I get to do it for just one. Whereas if you did it in mm -hmm. the other order, you might actually miss out on getting the brewery location because you designated a movement and the other three people at the table all soaked up that card. Now you can't get your brewery. You got to find another way to do it, right? There's a lot going on with the timing of the cards. What you want to do is important. You're going to be able to do it, but how to take the most efficient path to that end, I think that's where the meat of the game lies. And that said, there's also a subtle need here for players to work together to keep those gnomes in check. Because yes. if you don't, they absolutely will win the game. You cannot ignore them. They will win if they're left unchecked. Ladies and gentlemen, the Level Up Board Game Podcast does not have any sort of hate towards gnomes. It's just that in this one board game, they suck. Yes, they're terrible. Um, <laughs> Gnomes are terrible people. But no, no, with mine, the meat of the game, I think my biggest decision making was what upgrades I wanted to Ooh, yeah. do because I really got stuck with like, do I want to do this one here? And each one of them's asymmetric. So yours aren't going to match up with anybody else's. So you really have to think. What's going to benefit you and not take into consideration other people? You really have to focus on your game. Once you get to the point where you start getting into like, I'm going to do this, but then they have this and they could do that. You get in the death spiral and then you aren't playing your game. You've been completely taken out and it's game over for you. You really have to pay attention to what you're doing and what upgrades you want to take, I think. 
Let's factor in that middle location, that fortress in the middle where the gnomes start the game. Yes. At the end of a round, whoever controls that spot gets two points. And in, and in this game, two points, if you can trigger that three rounds, that is a hefty sum. Oh, it is. That's a big portion of the game. Can I take that spot and can I hold it? When you're flipping those gnome cards to decide what they do, oftentimes they do prioritize retaking the center of the board. Uh, and I think I pointed right. that out when we played, but that is a meaty chunk of the game. Who's holding the middle and can they continue to hold it? I really like mm -hmm. that fact. The game's got a lot of meat on the bones. I think we can agree. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We started to tap into it with the uh, unique player powers, replayability, and variability. Scott, I'm going to go down this list, add in and embellish as you wish. You ready? All right. Okay. We got five player colors. And if you have the desert expansion, six player colors. And what that means is whenever you sit down and you say, okay, I'll play green, you get three sheets and each sheet is double-sided and each sheet represents a, a, a faction, like a, a a race that you can play. So everybody has humans. Every single color has one side of one sheet that says humans. Beyond that, you have five unique ones. Trolls, giants, vampires, pirates, and lizards, whatever. The blue player, their five are different than yours. The red mm -hmm. player, the, the green player, everybody has five unique factions. So if you do the math, that is 26 different factions that you can play with. And that is more than Twilight Imperium with the expansion. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's something there that's a lot of fun. I love how they do it. And each one of them is tweaked just a little bit to kind of get the flavor of the race that you're playing. Yeah, yeah. If you're the giants, you want to be in the mountains. If you're the dwarves, you want to be uh, you want to be in the mountains as well. With dwarves, for example, pirates right. can utilize the seas better. Uh, vampires they they get bonuses whenever they leech off of other races, kind of like to, to mm -hmm. represent blood sucking, whatever. The differences from one race to the next typically involve the action spaces and abilities granted. By upgrades, when you upgrade your own player board, you started to mention it, you thought that was a really meaty chunk of the game, and I agree. So while your faction choice isn't going to change your play entirely, you're still going to be utilizing the action cards, trying to get breweries down, trying to keep the gnomes in check. Your faction choice is going to give you your own asymmetric start and your own unique abilities. And, and it's the other thing, too, is it's just fine little differences. It's not like something that's tacked on to to make it different for the basis of making it different it's little things that really do encompass what that race would be another great design decision at the start of each round of play action cards are put into the middle of the table one more than the number of players so if you're in a four-player game five action cards go into the middle of the table and you take turns drafting them and sometimes they give you a one-time boon sometimes some points but sometimes you'll get one that has a worker placement spot on it that is unique to you and yours alone again not game altering it's not a confusing variable to add but a, another variable another way to make yes. the game replay oh i'm the vampires but i got this this extra factory that lets me make breweries cheaper or lets me brew extra beer well what if the giants had that I love the cards. You got your personal endgame uh, goals, which might give you some direction, uh, much like we, you see in, in lots of games. Everybody's dealt some cards, and you pick one or two to keep, and right. you score some at the end. Finally, that dragon. <laughs> <laughs> the significance here is that it doesn't show up until the dragon lair tile is discovered. 
there's going to be games where no one finds that tile. You don't want to find the tile. Let's be clear. Mm -hmm. You don't want to find it, but you do want to expand. And inevitably, when someone expands, it shows the adjacent tiles. And oh, there it is. There's going to be games where that doesn't happen until round three or four. And the dragon only gets- We did it. It was round one. (laughs) We we did the one play that it came out on round one. Yes. That changes the game entirely. What does it mean? It means we're going to have to bribe the dragon more, which means we have to strive for coins more, which means we're not going to have an abundance. We're going to have to spend our time accumulating coins to bribe the dragon to keep what little we have built. And then the gnomes pile it on. (laughs) Oh, the game has variables that I like to see. It doesn't arbitrarily shift endgame targets. It doesn't introduce wild rules that, oh, it's totally different this time. It gives you an asymmetric choice at the start, and then it slow drips further asymmetry round after round that makes it easy to digest. And frankly, I think it's going to keep the game coming back to the table. Yeah, and I think that you really nailed on that there, where they don't arbitrarily throw in rules to make it like your way that you're going to play different each time. They really thought out what rules would make this game good. As with any game, we have bit number seven, where we have a look at the potential downsides of a game, even games that we absolutely love. It is our duty as two random people talking about board games to tell other people (laughs) what they might not like about them. Scott, I suppose we said it with Barrage a couple episodes back. Now, this is a completely different style of game. But Rise of the Gnomes has the potential to get really nasty. Oh, oh, most definitely. Uh, it's not only that you playing against your opponent, you're playing against the dragon, planning for that, plus the gnomes. So you are getting bombarded on all sides all the time mm-hmm. in this game. Scott, I think of that spot where you can add two of your cubes and boot two of somebody else's from a spot. I think of uh, sharking away placement spots that someone else might have wanted, but you know what the meanest spot on that game board is? There's a placement spot where you can pay two gold and move the dragon two spaces mm. as you wish. <laughs> and yes, holy... yes, I forgot about that one. Oh, well, I mean, you're going to lose friendships over that. You find find someone who's fresh out of coins, you find that tasty spot where they have double breweries and you send the dragon there. They know why you did it. That that doesn't help. Well, I mean, yes, it can indirectly help you because maybe they're in the lead and that'll that'll knock them back a few pegs. That can wreck plays and it is mean. Yeah, I, I think that that's another thing that you're hitting on is that there aren't really downsides in the game itself. I think the downsides come in the execution of you playing the game. We'll say the potential personalities at the table. Yes. I mean, you could be playing with someone that you don't really know. You do something like that. They're going to flip the table. (laughs) There's, yeah, there's things here you really need to go into. You almost have to have like a personality test of everyone you're playing with to get an idea how this is going to go. I know whenever we played, we're, we all are pretty much like, Hey, let's just have fun, have a good time. So I wasn't worried about that. But there was one person I played a game with at um, Origins a few years ago. I mean, he literally got up, screamed and yelled at the person running the game. They had to tell the person to leave. And it was just an absolute embarrassment. It's like, as you said, we're just two people talking about games. You're a person pretending to have a brewery in a fantasy world where you're fighting a dragon. Have 
Yeah, that guy would not like this game because uh, no. it can be no, nasty. No, no, no. You know, I said earlier that someone at the table probably has to know the game pretty well because it's not hard to process the dragon and gnome cards to run the game's AI, but I feel like the flow of the game can get interrupted if you don't have someone that fully understands. Okay, so one card might say, uh, uh, find a, a gnome space in the forest. Um, and what if they're in two different forests? Well, there's symbols at the bottom of the card. And you, okay, does one of the forests have the antlers? No. What about the double fish? Yes. Oh, okay, yes, so that's yes. the one. Okay, so we found the spot. Add three cubes to an adjacent fields. Oh, well, there's two fields. Which one do we look at the bottom of the card? Does one of the fields have the antlers? No. The double fish? No. The deer? Yes. That's where they're adding. Now, if you have someone who's mm -hmm. done that before, it's going to be really, really simple. But if you're gathering a, a group that has never played and no one knows the rules inside and out, you're just trying to go off the book. I can see where that, that could be a bit of a speed bump. Maybe the biggest downside, I feel like everyone has the potential to get off to a good start and the tools are there. But if you have a bad first round, like if someone it's their first play and they just don't have a great first round, they don't see the importance of adding another brewery or something – there isn't a catch-up mechanism for them, and there is that chance that someone's just going to have a rough game. Like, couple that not-so-great start with, what if the gnome cards flip up, and the gnomes want mm. to wreck Scott, and then we flip up the next gnome card, and it wants to wreck Scott, and then we flip up the next gnome card, and it wants to wreck Scott, and then the dragon <laughs> wants to wreck Scott. Not giving away anything yeah. about what happened in our play. <laughs> <laughs> But not only can players be nasty to each other, you've got to be okay with the fact that, you know what, I might sit down and the game as the the ex player, you know, the game as a player itself might have it out for me. You've got to be okay with that. You know, no one's no one's winning a free meal based off of their, their play Rise of the Gnomes. And sometimes you're going to sit down and the game is just going to point its finger at you and say... I'm not going to let you win. <laughs> I can see where some, like, I, I think it's fun. I think it's funny and it makes for a good story, but I can see where some folks would be completely off put by that. Yes. Yes. Completely agree. So after all that downsides, was it fun? And who do you think this game is for? What do you think, Patrick? This game is a blast. Scott, Rise of the Gnomes is fantastic. We've had some big titles for our recent reviews, and I'm really glad to get Rise of the Gnomes in there because I feel like this might have been a little bit under the radar. Like, I look at board games a lot, and I only heard about this one through the grapevine from Will, who got me in touch with the designer, who said, yeah, you can get a copy here. This thing's a blast. I had it out twice at five, twice at four, once with two. Every time that I've played it, it's been a competitive game. It makes you think about it makes you think without racking your brain, right? It puts you in a position. Mm -hmm. It puts you in a position where you can point fingers at each other. You can get snippy with each other. You can bargain <laughs> with each other. What if you put these over there and then I well, if you put them on me, I'm gonna go to that dragon spot. I promise you I will drag <laughs> it, right? You can start to like get the game off of the table and up in the player's brains and, and mannerisms and whatnot. Factor in the ridiculous number of factions. A lot of games that we review, we review them and they go on the sell pile. And it's not because it's not a good game. It's because, well, we have to move on to the next review. And I've got my 20 evergreens that, you know, if I'm going to replace something, it's going to be one of those ones, right? This doesn't compete with my right. top 20. I, this, this game is staying. This game is absolutely staying. I want to try the solo <laughs> mode, the co-op mode. 
There's a ton to explore here, and I want to explore it all. Now, who's it for? I think that was kind of answered with downsides. I think we both sort of agree that it's more about who's this game not for than who is it for. It doesn't have a catch-up mechanism. The game has you attacking each other. The game has you being mean with each other. And sometimes the game might, like I said, point its finger at you and say, you ain't going to have a good play today. I'm kicking your butt, right? It's an area control game where you got to manage your economy of beer in order to perform well on the board, or at least you have to play in an efficient way. If your group likes area control, you cut your teeth on Axis and Allies, but you want something a little more asymmetric, a little bit more complex, I think those folks are going to love this worker placement version of area control. What do you think, Scott? Rise of the Gnomes, was it fun? Well, I have to say, I agree with you with who's it for completely. What you said, ditto. I completely agree. Mm. Was it fun? It was fun, but I don't think I got as much enjoyment out of it as you okay. did. Now, I enjoyed it. I had fun. This is one that I will definitely enjoy going back and revisiting, but it's not one that I'm going to pick all the meat off the bones and explore every last little thing that can go on in this. That doesn't mean it's a bad game. It's a great game. It really is. But it's one that I want to... I want to be in the mood for it whenever it comes out to the table. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be just brought out and we're going to play it again. We're going to play it. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Let's play it again. It's one of those ones where you're preparing for Thanksgiving dinner and you're ready for a turkey. Well, in this case, I'm ready for Rise of the Gnomes. So it's one of those ones where I really want to be in the mood for it. The desire to play it is there. That's where you get the most enjoyment out of it. It, it was a fun game. One of my top games? No, but then that's just me. So take that as you will. Uh, I think, once again, I've said this before, after 70 episodes, people get an idea what games you like, what games I like. Take our uh, decisions on what you think it is and if this game is for you. Good game. Looking forward to the next time that I have that hunger pang for Rise of the Gnomes. the sick of the Viennese modern age, exquisite cafes are competing for customers. Inspiring artists, important politicians, and tourists from all over the world are populating Vienna and in need of a hotel room. This is your opportunity to turn your little cafe into a world-famous hotel. Hire staff, fulfill the wishes of your guests, and gain the emperor's favor. Only then will your cafe become the Grand Austria Hotel. I like it. Scott, one year ago today, we reviewed Grand Austria Hotel. Back then, I gave this one a huge recommend. I think you did too. I think we we're both pretty uh, pretty up on Grand Austria Hotel. Yes. With me going back and remembering my hotel background, this was a lot of fun. Putting the people in their rooms, heads and beds, as I said uh, during that uh, review. Great time with this. There are so many little things that are going on in this, in this game 
but they all flow together well. All based on that main mechanism uh, of the action selection board, which, as you'll recall, you roll several dice, and then they yes. get placed onto that board according to their numbers. So the two slot might have five dice that came up with a two, which means the first person to take a die from that slot gets that action times five. Other actions have some dice allocated as well, all depending on the roll. I think that mechanism is what makes Grand Austria Hotel so good and so replayable. Yeah, it, it, that one definitely stands out is I don't I can't really think of any other game that really utilizes that mechanic. Yeah, and it's interesting because you can have an idea of how you want to pursue your play, but depending on how the dice are allocated, it's regularly going to give you those decision intersections where you might find it wise to pivot from your original strategy. It least for the time being, right? It's a game that gives players agency in their game. It has a rewarding table presence when finished. Like everyone's going to have a nice hotel board with some people off to mm -hmm. bed, little flipped over closed doors on. It feels like you accomplished something when you're done. Very much so. And I love that the hotel boards, everyone has the same one or you can flip it over and they're all different. I like the differing player styles based on those those assistants that you can acquire. And, and honestly, oh, I think yes, that plays yes. a big role in the game plan too. Like you can be the guy that gets a ton of cash or you can have a premier cafe. And a lot of it depends on those assistants coupled with that varying customers are going to show up. And this is a game mm -hmm. that plays a little differently each play. And that means you need to vary your play from one game to the other. It's just fantastic. Yeah, this is one here that I could definitely go back and play multiple times over and over and just get a completely different experience each time I play it. And um, this, I think, I would rank higher than Rise of the Gnomes that we just talked about. That I this one scratched that itch in my brain of what I really enjoy in a game. Yeah, this is more your style, I, I think. Even though it does yes. have some some we'll say subtle interaction, certainly nowhere near as direct as Rise. This is definitely a, a Scott game. I I loved it oh, too. Yeah. I don't know if I can compare it with Rise of the Gnomes just because they're so different. But as far as like mm -hmm. flavor, like what type of game is preferred, this is the type of game that you prefer, whereas Rise of the Gnomes is the type of game that I prefer. But uh, similar right. to your take on, on Rise, I'm very willing to play this every time it comes out. I really liked Grand Austria Hotel. We recommend in this one? Oh, definitely recommend. I just wrote, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be an amazing game for the group that wants to build up armies and attack each other. There isn't bargaining. There isn't out loud laughing. It's a game that rewards players for using their brain, making the best plays they can. It's head down to the table kind of Euro, but one with some theme to it and one that I think it's pretty easy to recommend to a majority of gamers. Very much so. Yeah. Very ease of entry to get into this game. Well, Scott, we've got a brief discussion today, more of like a list of games kind of discussion. I put up a Facebook topic uh, about games that are great, welcoming games that also have enough depth for your hardcore game group. And this came up because I got Ready, Set, Bet from AEG. They gave out, uh, they, they had media, like a media presentation for all sorts of media personalities, a couple of them scheduled per day. So they take you into this room and I'm telling you what, it was weird because it was at one of the hotels there. Ryan goes with me and we get up to the floor and like there isn't any, there aren't people outside. It's just like a random hotel hallway. 
We're like, wait, are we actually in the – so we knock on the door. Like we put our ears up to the door first. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's people in there. I hear people. Should we knock? I'm going to knock. Do it. Go ahead. Knock. So we knock. And, and sure enough, that's where it was. We just happened to be the, the first ones in there. They have a couple games set up and they give you the goodie bag with a few games to take home that they want you to play and talk about. And the first one that mm -hmm. I got around to just a couple weeks ago was Ready, Set, Bet. And I actually talked about it last episode my first thought was this is going to be a little bit light for the gamers that I had over. It's just a simple betting game, but it was a home run. It was a, I'm not going to uh -oh. get into the details of the game because, well, we just did last episode. What I did want to do though, in that post that I shared was I wanted to hear some thoughts about other games that people think are great for both groups. This is a game that you can easily learn and digest. You can show it to your casual friends, but if the casual friends aren't around and you got your hardcore game group, we can still play this. Deep games oh, yes. with light rule sets. Games that offer agency and decisions without chain reactions and triggers and nuance and restrictions, right? Basically, yes. nothing Lacerda. <laughs> <laughs> so typically, I would think that like super complex games, mean games, they're not going to typically qualify. So... I jotted down some of the ones from Facebook, some of the responses. We have uh, several of the games here. So I thought maybe you and I could just uh, maybe list a handful of games that fall into that category, why we think they do, what we love about them. So how about we just back and forth, you pick it up, and we'll go, uh, how about four each? All right. That sounds Let's, like a plan well, to me the here. The floor is yours, King. All right. So my first one that I pulled out here was one that I actually got to the table about a month ago, and that is Zorro. Now, Soro is a game where you're laying tiles and you have paths that you're going to be running your rocks across. Mm -hmm. Yes, they have little rocks that you move on these paths. So as you're playing this, you're playing out, put a tile down, you move your rock to the end of that tile. Well, then your opponent puts down a tile. You move it to the end of that one. It's one game that really holds your hands as you're going through and playing. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. You just follow the path you're on and keep going. The idea is you want to be the last person on the board. You can play this completely oblivious of what's going on and just throw it on a piece and follow it. That's what you can do to get people into playing. Mm -hmm. it. But if you're playing with other players that are really into strategy and everything, you're there then stopping and thinking, What's the best way that I can make two people run into each other and de defeat them both? You can put a little extra thought so into it. So you really think of these things that are a lot deeper, but you can easily play this game with anybody. I got this for my nephew for Christmas, I think it was. He loved it. We sat down, we played it immediately. His mother loved it because it wasn't anything difficult that she had to learn how to play. So it worked out very well. So Suro is definitely one of my picks for that. I'm going to go with Quacks of Quedlinburg, one that we've actually not talked about on the show before. Quacks is a, a bit of a press-your-luck game. You play as witches brewing potions. So you've got the bag with all sorts of little goodies in it. And, and to start the game, you have all, all sorts of little baddies. You're pulling out these tokens, and you're going around your cauldron board. It's just a spiral of little spaces. And the idea is if you hit so many of one bad type of ingredient, you bust and you can pick incomer points but you don't get both so the idea is to stop 
before you hit that point. So that's a pretty simple <laughs> mechanism. But what, what I think Quacks does really nicely is it starts the game with four different types of ingredients that you can purchase to add to your bag. That's a big decision. Uh, how many are you going to purchase? Which one are you going to purchase? And then as the game progresses, you're given more options. So while the core mechanism, press your luck, no no heavy gamer is going to be like, oh man, there was so much meat on that game because of the press your luck mechanism. No, no, that's not the point. It's what are you going to add to your bag? What are you going to use to, you know, do you think you have a, a lot of game left? Well, then go for this one. Do you just need a big thing? Go for that giant pumpkin. I like that the decisions are there from the beginning of the game. There are further decisions slow dripped as you get more tiles added. And those tiles are double-sided. So it's not like you're going to have the same options every time. You, you can flip right. that tile over. You can get an expansion and change it up a little bit. Very easy to teach to new players. This one is perfect for a game day with casuals. This is perfect for our meetups. I can take people that have never played it and be like, okay, look, here's how it's played. And they know what they're doing within a turn. Mm-hmm. And yet I've played it plenty now. I feel like, oh, I, I haven't mastered Quacks of Quedlinburg. No, but like I've seen it. I know <laughs> what it has to it. And yet I'm happy to get back to it because of the variables and the, the hidden amounts of depth within Quacks of Quedlinburg. Well, very nice. My next one is a beautiful game once you get it out, and that is Sagrada. Now, this is the game of... If you stop and you think about it, you're like, wait a minute, you're going to make stained glass out of dice? But yes, you have a stained glass that you're going to make out of different colored Mm -hmm. dice. So what will happen is you select your player board and then you select a pane of glass that you're going to slide into that that are going to have different squares all over. Each one of those squares will either be blank, they'll have a number on it, a number of pips, they'll have a color on it. Or they'll have a color and some pips mm-hmm. on it. So what would happen is you go through, you roll a ridiculous amount of dice, depending on how many people are playing the game. Sure. Then you start drafting the dice. So as you draft the dice, you pick out a die, you place it on your window. But you have to follow the rules that are on that pane of glass. If there's one that has three pips on it, well, you have to place a die on there that has three pips. If you have something that has a red on it, you have to put on one that has just red on it. This is something here that, once again, it's an easy game to play it, and they have difficulty in the number of the pains that you can get. So the pains can be very, very simple. They can be very difficult, depending on who you're playing Mm -hmm. with. This is one that I've gotten out with a number of new players and gotten it out, and they love it because whenever you're finished building it and playing it, you have a beautiful piece of art, if you will, in front of you that you're looking at it. Then the other thing that's nice is you can add or subtract these extra little rules. There are um, little uh, glass beads Mm -hmm. that you can use to activate special powers. Now, you don't really have to play with those things there, but once the people get to the point that they're really familiar with the game, toss that in. That gets a little bit more and gets them a little more invested in the game in playing it. But once again, it's something very simple. You roll dice, you match the die onto the pane of glass. There you go. Those are the rules for the game, basically. And then you figure out the points afterwards. Really simple, beautiful presence on the table. 
great game to, to get new people into, Sagrada. Next one I put down, it's really a combination of games. I said Clask, but that can also apply to like Flick'em Up or Crokinole, your, your general dexterity games. And this one isn't so much of a like uh, the game has more depth as as you play it more, more of a, a skill curve where somebody who's brand new to Clask, you can show them how to play and they literally know the rules just as well as anyone else within three minutes. Right. But there is something to be said about skill. Like if I was playing with just my brother for five years, we would suck initially. And then five years down the road, we would know each other's nuances, special trick shots, special plays, whether it be Clask or Flick'em Up or Crokinole. I love a good dexterity game for the fact that it's really, really easy to get someone into it and they understand how to play it. But then as they play it more, they start to think of like a, a game like Catacombs that has cards and, oh, when am I going to use the fireball and put that on there? But even something simple like Clask, oh, I've got to be careful. I don't want to have the, my, my my pole, my, my little stick piece, my my mover, my bumper. Right. I don't want to have it fall into my own. So I got to keep my hands kind of forward, but then I've got to watch out for those three because I've, I've been there before. I've had those little magnets stick to my thing and I've lost a point that way. <laughs> and it becomes more fun as you play and your skill progresses with someone else who is also progressing at the same level. Five years from now, my brother and I, who are class champions, right? We're not going to want to play with someone who's brand new. It's not going to be fun for us. It's not going to be fun for them, but they could still play and they could still play with someone yes. else who's brand new to it and then have a really good time with it. So I thought dexterity games would get a, we don't mention them often enough. So I figured this is the, a great place right, to put yes. it. What you got for your third, Scott? My third one is another one that kind of holds your hands in like what you can do, and that is Splendor. Now, Splendor is one of those games, one of the first games that really came into the hobby game market and then blew up in the big box. That was one of the first games that like you could get like Chinese knockoffs of. I remember you had like Ally Express or one of those like order direct from China and they had copies of Splendor. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's the real McCoy right there. Yep, it's Splendor spelled with an A. <laughs> Splendor. Um, but yes, in Splendor, you are basically a person that's making jewelry for the royalty of England. And as you go along, you are picking up cards in order to get gems. Mm-hmm. Now, the gems that you get will help you pay for other cards. That will give you more points and more gems as you go along. And the whole idea is that you're building gems in order to get the royalty to say, hey, I like their work. Ooh. I'm going to go spend my money there. You got to seduce the royals. Um, exactly. It's a very simple game, very easy to explain. I mean, the rule book is if you really take out what the items are in the game and the information on the company that made it, it's probably two pages mm-hmm. of rules. That's about it. Very simple to play, very welcoming to get into play. And then they've also done it where they have a Marvel version of it now. And it's making it more accessible to more people. It's that easy to get into this game. Splendor is one that it, the, one of the great things about it are the tokens you have for the gems. They're like poker chips. And just that feeling of having those poker chips in your hands and that click. That's something else I think that really gets into people, the aesthetics of having those chips in their hand, 
clicking them and it just kind of draws them right into the game. Anytime I think of Splendor, there's always like every few months I'll come across a post on Facebook that's like, everybody show me board games that waste space in the box. And Splendor is always the first one. I think it has an insert. And if you take out the insert, you've got a box that's like like four by oh, yeah. 10 and there's literally a deck of cards and a small stack of poker chips in the corner. And it's like, wait a minute, that <laughs> that could have fit into like one of the Oink Games boxes. Yes, they yes. To each their own. Good pick on Splendor. I'm going to go with Camel Up, which I've talked about Ooh. way, way back. It's so simple to understand because it's at its core, it's a just a gambling game. You're just betting on these camels. But whenever you start to factor in the probabilities, whenever I turn that pyramid over, what die is going to come out and what number is it? The implications of well, if it's a blue two versus a white one versus an orange three, holy smokes. It's like the mathematical tree probably has a billion branches <laughs> at the beginning of the game. And it doesn't. It does not get pruned very much until very close to the end. That gives gamer gamers a lot more to think about. As they're playing, it gives you a lot to think about whenever you're betting on each leg, where you're going to put your desert tiles, what you're going to bet for overall winner, overall loser, when to do it. There's a timing factor at play as well. And yet, with all of these details, somebody can play for the very first time. And as long as they have some familiarity with probabilities, they're going to be able to play pretty darn well. Camel up. I like that one. Yeah, that's a great choice. One more, um, Scott. We got to we got to yes. wrapping up our episode. So make it oh, count. Yeah. Make it a good one. All right. My last one is Seven Wonders. Now I know a lot of people are probably looking at me, going, "Wait, wait, 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 wait." You mean that one with like thirty six different icons or something like that on that game? Yes, I'm talking about that game. Seven Wonders is a game that gets done quickly. You can play this game in thirty minutes reset it up in like five minutes and play it again. And that's what's happened with me every time I played it with new players. We play it, they stumble through, and then once we get to the end, they're like, can we play that again? Mm -hmm. You are playing, trying to assemble one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as you're doing it, you have different ways of scoring. You can score just by completing your portions of the wonders of the world. You can score points by building different monuments and things like that in your city. You can score points by getting different sciences that will increase the benefits of your society. You can get points by beating people down with your military. There's so many different ways of playing it. Each time you play it, I know myself, each time I play this game, I look at it and I think, all right, I'm going to go heavy military this time, or I'm going to go with sciences Mm -hmm. this time. So each and every time I played it, I play a different way to see what happens. And I've yet to have a time that I really feel like, man, I I, I never want to play this game huh? again. I, I've always had a great time playing it. And whenever someone's like, all right, let's go to something else, I'm usually like, oh, can't we do one more time? Scott, I'm going to wrap it up with a new game, one that I had the chance to play at Gen Con called Scout. Scout is a ladder climbing game, which which basically means everybody gets their hand of cards. And like if someone leads with a two, 
then the next player has to play a three or higher. Say they play a six. Then the next mm-hmm. person has to play a, a, a 10, right? And the deck goes up to a, a set number. I think it is a, a 10, in fact. So what happens then? The next person can beat the 10 by leading with, uh, by playing a pair. Okay, well, I'll play a pair of ones. So any pair beats any single card. Um, in the case of okay. Scott, I believe it's a run. So uh, you're not looking for a pair. You're looking for a run like two, three, four is a small straight. Uh, three, three, four sure. is a straight for that matter. So if I lead off with, uh, say, seven, the next person can play two, three because they played two in a row. It's a run. The next person can, mm. can go higher and they can either play a pair, which beats my run. They play pair of fives. The next person can then play a higher pair, so a pair of sevens, or they can play a higher run, a run of three cards, so uh, two, three, four, or seven, eight, nine, right? Until eventually someone cannot make a play. Um, It's it's a simple game. It's a ladder climbing game, but the, the hook with Scout is when you're dealt your cards, your hand, you fan it out, and you may either play the hand exactly as it lies or flip it upside down and play it exactly as it lies. That's it. You don't get to manipulate the positioning of any of the cards in your hand. I think this works for casual gamers for introducing someone to a game because the concept of ladder climbing is quite simple. You just have to play bigger than what the previous play was. Nothing to see there. You're not forcing players to have to manipulate their hand into an optimal position. I'm not going to get crushed because this is my first time playing and I didn't realize that I should shift this card to that space. No, we all have to either play with our hand this way or flip it upside down and play with the numbers that way. What I mean by flip it upside down, quite simple. If your hand, the order is uh, one, three, three, four, five, nine, you flip it upside down, it's nine four, three, three, what, you know, whatever it is, just in the mm, reverse okay. order. Now you can, when you play cards, you can pick them from anywhere in your hand, but whether or not you have a straight uh, is going to depend on the orientation of your hand. I think why this can work for deeper gamers is because you are forced to play with a restriction. You don't get further manipulation. So it forces you to change the value on, should I lead off with a two here? Because I can get rid of my two and just get rid of it. Or should I lead off with double sevens because I have them and see if I can stump people this hand? You know, we're getting close to the end. I don't think other right, people have right. doubles. Um, I was I was actually pretty impressed with the amount of depth for such a really simple, stupid concept for a game. Yeah, you get your hand. You barely get to do anything with it and just start playing cards. My first thought was, man, we're just kind of going through the motions here. I'm not playing the game. I'm just participating in the game. But as we played more and more, it did start to kind of shine. And I started to say, oh, wait a minute. There's there's some things I can do here. And that's why mm-hmm. I'll pick Scout as my fourth. We did make a big list, some fantastic suggestions, ranging from the classics, the, the Catan, King of Tokyo, Ticket to Ride, Pandemic, to some of the, we'll say the the next step games that some people say, you know, I'd have a, had a lot of luck with games like games like Clank, a game like Concordia came up several times, Viticulture, Calico. You yes. mentioned earlier in the episode, Mountains Out of Molehills. That's got a surprising amount of depth for a game that I think is easy to introduce. Think about it, adventurers. Next time you have some casual players over, what are some of the games that appeal to them the most? Hit us up on Facebook. Maybe give us a response on that post. Yeah, definitely. Yes, it's time when we take a look and see how we leveled up since the last time we recorded. 
my level up has to do with the Renaissance oh, festival. Faithful. And what I mean by that is that I get people that come back year after year and children that come back year after mm-hmm. year and just come back and we see them again and we have that connection and it's just such a wonderful moment. There's one girl and we've watched her go now. I think she's uh, in ninth grade now. I think it is. But oh my gosh, she has the the most, oh, how do I want to say it? Infectious smile. Captivating no, laughter. No, no. terrifying look. <laughs> what? She will just stand there. Yes, she will stand there and she just like cocks her head, like furrows her brow. And I'm like, already, I'm like, what did I do? I did something wrong. I'm sorry. And I know I didn't do anything, but she just has that ability to do it. But she's come back year after year after year, and we formed a friendship with her uh, her parents, with her, and it's great to see these people you don't see throughout the year, and they come back, and it's just like that moment is still there. It's a wonderful feeling, and I consider myself extremely lucky to be able to participate in something that has that kind of thing there. It's really wonderful moments like that that I mm-hmm. really enjoy that I've leveled up since last time we recorded. Scott, my level up for episode 70, it is scheduled, I think, next week. You'll rec- Okay, you'll recall, like, episode three or something? Way, way back, we did a games that I'm ashamed I've not yet played, and my selection oh, yes. was War of the Rings 2nd Edition. I was chatting with Tom yesterday. It's scheduled sometime within the next two weeks. I will have a playdown of... War of the Ring, second edition, finally. <laughs> so that's that's the uh, you know what I put it here as my level up because now if it doesn't happen, I'm gonna have egg on my face. So let's let's see that it comes to fruition. I'm hoping it comes to fruition and you have a great time playing it. Adventurers, thank you so much for tuning in and letting us uh, uh, grace your ears today. We're really pleased to be a part of your day. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, do keep in mind October 1st and 2nd is the Pittsburgh uh, PGX Retro Gaming Convention. We're gonna be there we're going to be showing off games we've got panels going on the good folks from steel city dice gaming meetup are going to be there brown castle games will be there with crokinole boards showing people how to play i think they might even oh, yeah. be running a tournament it's going to be a really good time so keep your ears open for that scott the last word is yours oh i will have to say this is a word that uh that doesn't get used enough by me and i think this time of year it definitely needs to be used loaf Hydrate. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.